Tonight we'll be in Psalm 37. I'm leading a study week by week where we are working through the Psalms. We've made it to a little bit longer Psalm tonight. 40 verses, Psalm 37. We're going to try to get through that so we can keep moving. Psalm 37. Before we get started, I want to read this summary of the Psalms. I've read this every week. It's a good reminder as to the major themes of the Psalms. The 150 chapters, longest book in the Bible. And these chapters are actually hymns that are written for the purpose of corporate worship. And these hymns have some overarching themes, some overarching things that God wants us to learn and to to glean and to grasp hold of. So here are the themes of the book of Psalms. God, the true and glorious King, is worthy of all praise and prayer, thanksgiving and confidence, whatever the occasion in personal or community life. And so we're reminded by that, that whether times are good or bad, God is worthy of our worship. And whether times are good or bad, God is worthy of our trust and confidence. He is worthy of our uh, trusting in Him because He uh, is the one who holds us in His hand. And so... That is a summary of the book of Psalms. I love the Psalms. They are filled with emotion. They are poignant. They are raw. Just about every emotion you can imagine is found in the Psalms somewhere. What I love about the Psalms is that when you see these emotions, they are emotions that are declared in reverence. So even though the psalmist may be hurting, the situation may be a very difficult situation, the psalmist is reverent, knowing that even though they're, they're hurting and struggling and their emotions are raw, God is still worthy of their praise and still worthy of their confidence. We see that over and over and over again. We've made it to another Davidic psalm. By Davidic, we mean David wrote it. And David was the second king of Israel. And it's a psalm that is filled with some wonderful, wonderful truths. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to jump right into this study. <clears throat> Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. We are grateful, Lord, for this opportunity to gather together and to focus our minds, attention, and hearts' affection upon you. We just pray, Lord, that you would draw near to us in these moments by your Spirit, that we would understand your Word, and that we would have the wherewithal to respond to your Word, to live according to your Word. And we'll thank you, Lord, for that grace. We love you tonight, and we praise you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Does anyone need a handout that did not get one? Does anyone need a handout? Uh, I think most people coming in got one. All right. Just something for you to follow along um, with me. A couple thoughts about Psalm 37 to get started, some introductory thoughts. First of all, it's a Hebrew acrostic, which was a form of Hebrew poetry, where they would start verses with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. They would usually start with, you know, Aleph, which is like the letter A in the English alphabet. And then the next verse would start with the next letter, uh, Aleph, Gimel, uh, and would work its way, Olive Bait Gimel Dalit, uh, would work its way through the Hebrew alphabet. It was just a, a way to organize thoughts and to be thoughtful in what was being written. And so you can know that Psalm 37 had a lot of thought behind it. David is writing about some, some themes here, but he is beginning uh, verses with different letters of the Hebrew alphabet, just a way to keep it organized. And so it's a Hebrew acrostic. And it was written later in David's life. And we know that because we see what David says in verse 25. Look what it says in verse 25. David writes, I have been young 
and now am old. Pretty clear, right? <laughs> a lot of the Psalms, you don't know if David's writing when he's young or when he's older. You're kind of guessing, but this Psalm is very clear. David says, I've been young, now I am old. So David is thinking in a reflective manner about his life and about things that he saw. And he's writing about those things here in Psalm 37. And so how would you describe this psalm? Well, here's the title I've given it. Trust in the Lord when nice guys finish last. That's the theme of this psalm. Trust in the Lord when nice guys finish last. In other words, David is trying to grapple with the reality that in this life, you see people who are wicked thriving. And you see people who are righteous struggling. How do you... How do you think through that. I mean, how do you wrap your mind around that when you see people who don't care about the things of God, and man, their life is going great. And you see people who are trying to faithfully serve the Lord and fear God, and their life is falling apart. So how are you to think through um, those issues? And, And Psalm 37 is David's attempt, among other attempts in the Psalms, to think through those issues. This Psalm, if you look there in your notes, is an admonition to live with an eternal perspective. If you lose, listen to me, if you lose sight of eternity, this life is not going to make any sense to you. If you forget that there is eternity after this life, if you forget that, this life is not going to make any sense to you. It's going to seem like it is meaningless and random. And so David is encouraging us here, encouraging the hearers of the psalm, the ones who would use the psalm in worship, to think about life from an eternal perspective. When we lose sight of eternity, we can tend to anger. And that's what David is dealing with here. He is is dealing with anger. Look what it says in verse 1. Fret not yourself because of evil doers. Notice that word fret. And then fast forward down to verse 7. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way. So he uses the word fret again. And I believe fret here is a bad translation of the Hebrew word. It just doesn't, just doesn't encapsulate what this word is all about. I spent a lot of time studying this word today. The Hebrew word is the word kara. Kara. That, that's the Hebrew word translated fret. And it literally means to kindle or to burn. And it came to be used as a reference for anger. And so when David says fret not, he's saying don't be angry. Don't kindle. Don't burn over what you see happening all around you. We know that's what he has in mind because look what it says in verse 8. After he says, fret not yourself, right before that he says, refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. And so when you look at that verse, in the context, fret is clearly meaning something like, don't be angry. Don't let your wrath be kindled. Don't be angry at what you see happening. And what does David see happening? David sees ungodly people thriving. And he's saying, when you look around, it doesn't look like it's fair. Nice guys are finishing last. It doesn't seem fair. But David's point is, don't get angry about it. That's not how you should respond. If you're angry, if you see things as unjust, uh, then you're not looking at things from an eternal perspective. Now, it's interesting to think about where the anger that David is warning against could be directed. Some people could be angry uh, at just others. You know, people that are ungodly, but they're thriving. You're angry at the way that they're living. You're angry at the mockery they're making of the things of God. Anger can be directed at others. 
uh, anger can be directed at our circumstance in life. Hey, why is that guy over there doing great and I'm struggling? I'm angry at my circumstances uh, of life. And really, when you kind of look at it at its foundational level, anger is ultimately directed at God, isn't it? Because guess what? God is the one who's sovereign over your circumstances. And if you're angry about your circumstances, you're really ultimately angry at God. Now think about that. And so I believe when David says, don't, don't be angry, don't fret, he's saying, hey, don't be angry at others, don't be angry at your circumstances, don't be angry at God, don't let this kindled anger rule your life. There's another way to live. If you will look at seemingly unjust things from an eternal perspective, life begins to make more sense. So, what is the opposite of anger? When nice guys finish last and bad guys do great, don't get angry about it. What, how should we respond? Well, we see it here in this text. David encourages the reader to do three things. Number one, David encourages the reader to look ahead. To look ahead. Look what happens in verse 2. We're back at verse 1. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. For, look at this, they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. And look what it says down in verse 10. In just a little while, in just a little while, he says, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. And so here is what... David is saying, don't spend your time being angry at folks whose end is destruction. Soon, they will be no more. Why would you be jealous of those who are headed for an eternity of destruction? The, the, the emotion should not be jealousy. The emotion should be pity. So when evaluating people's lives, don't focus on this quickly fading life. He says it, it fades like grass. Focus on eternity. In other words, if you see someone that is evil and they're thriving, don't say, well, they're thriving. Say, they are headed for destruction. And when you look at their life through an eternal lens, all of a sudden you're not so jealous of their life anymore, are you? Or you look at the person that is living for the Lord and they're struggling, and you say, you know what? From a temporal perspective, that looks unfair. But when I see that, yes, this life is hard, but they will spend eternity in heaven with Jesus, it'll all be worth it. When you look at their life from an eternal perspective, life begins to make more sense. And so, notice here the contrast between the end of the wicked and the righteous. David wants to make sure we understand that the wicked and the righteous experience two totally different realities when they come to the end of this life. Two totally different realities in eternity. So first of all, look at the, the wicked. Look what it says in verse, look in verse 35. I have seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree, but he passed away and he was no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found. And look what it says uh, in verse uh, third, uh, 38. But transgressors shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. And so you see someone 
that's a wicked person and they're, they're thriving and you think, well, they're getting away with it. No, they're not. Judgment is coming. Eternal reckoning is coming. One day, that, that wicked person, if they are not saved, that wicked person will stand before God and be judged for their rebellion against him. So why would you envy someone like that? You shouldn't envy someone. You should pity them, right? They are headed for an eternity of being cut off, of of being altogether destroyed. That's what David says. And so the end of the wicked is destruction, eternal destruction, eternal separation. Over in Revelation 20, we get a picture of this where it says, Those who are unsaved, their names are not in the Lamb's book of life. They will be cast into an eternal lake of fire. Well, they will suffer conscious torment separated from God forever and ever and ever and ever. That's where the wicked are headed. Why would you envy that? Right? But look at the end of the righteous. Look what it says in verse 18. The Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their heritage will remain forever. They are not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine, they have abundance. But the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish. Like smoke, they vanish away. The wicked borrows but does not pay back. But the righteous is generous in gifts. For those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land. But those cursed by him shall be cut off. The inheriting of the land speaks of our inheritance in the Lord, which... Uh, which in a big picture perspective speaks of our eternal inheritance in the Lord, which speaks of heaven, our eternity. Look what it says in verse 39. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. And so the righteous experience not destruction, they experience salvation. And just a quick word here, because you can get confused if you don't keep the big picture of Scripture in mind. The righteous here are not those who simply clean their lives up. Because no one is capable in their own strength of cleaning their life up. The righteous are those who trust in the Lord, who have made their refuge under His wings, and, and because of that decision to place their faith in the one true God and His redemption through Jesus Christ, they are made righteous by the Lord. He changes their life, so they begin to live righteously. Does that make sense? See, a lot of people think, well, I've got to clean up my life to come to God. It doesn't work like that. You can't clean up your life on your own. You don't, you don't clean up your life to come to God. You come to the Lord to clean up your life. He does the cleaning. He makes you righteous. He helps you live a righteous life. And so the righteous here are those who have placed their faith in the salvation that God offers, and because of that, He changes their life and makes them righteous. Does that make sense? This is not work salvation. This is the change that Jesus brings about in our lives when we place our faith in Him. And so there's this contrast between the end of the wicked and the righteous. J.M. Boyce says this, It is hard for most of us to take the long view because we are consumed by the present. But we need need to do it if we are to grow in grace and begin to understand something of what God is doing in this world. And so when you're evaluating circumstances, when you're evaluating other people's lives, don't think about this life. Think about eternity. And why would we ever envy someone whose end is destruction? Amen? And if a righteous person is suffering, guess what? Their suffering will pale in comparison, Romans 8 says, when they arrive in heaven. The the sufferings of this present age are not worthy to be compared 
with the glories that will be revealed. And so we can trust in our eternal realities. And so David encourages the reader to look ahead. Next time you feel like you are, are struggling with, with nice guys finishing last, remember eternity. And hold your place. Let me show you one more verse. Turn over to Proverbs chapter 24. Proverbs chapter 24, verse 19. This really makes it clear. Fret not yourself because of evildoers, and be not envious of the wicked. Why? For the evil man has no future. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. Don't envy sinners. What is there to envy? They are on a fast track to hell. Why in the world would you and I envy that? Amen? So David encourages the reader to look ahead. Now back in Psalm 34, David encourages the reader to look up. And this is where we really see the meat of the psalm. David encourages the reader, Psalm 37, to look up. What's the opposite of fretting and anger and kindled wrath? It's looking up. By looking up, he means, I mean, keep your focus on God. So how do we keep our focus upon God? Well, starting in verse 3, there are some alternatives to fretting, to anger. And, and they're laid out uh, in a very organized way because what we see are four imperatives. An imperative means it's a command. So four commands here that help us to keep our focus upon God. Number one, trust. Trust. Look what it says in verse 3. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. To trust God means to be confident in the Lord. To be confident in His promises. Confident in His care. Confident in the Lord. Trust Him. Look what it says in verse 25. Look at this confidence. I have been young and now I am old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or His children begging for bread. Trusting in God's care for His people. Look what it says in verse 28. For the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. Trust in God. Trust that God has you in his hand. He will take care of you. Even if it doesn't make sense, even if this life doesn't make sense, we can trust in God's care and God's concern. And so instead of being angry, we can trust God. Number two, we can delight Look what it says in verse 4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. I don't believe that means he will give you whatever you want. I believe it means that if you delight yourself in him, if he is your focus and priority, he will work in you godly and righteous desires to do the right thing. To delight is to find our pleasure and contentment in the Lord. So instead of worrying about whatever one else is doing, instead of, listen to this, Instead of worrying about everyone else's circumstances and everyone else's lives, just delight in God. You find your contentment in Him. Sure, you may not have the same financial situation that another person has or the same family situation another person has, but you have the Lord, and He's enough, right? So delight yourself in the Lord. Find your pleasure and contentment in Him. Listen to what Boyce says again. Uh, on this statement. This is a longer quote, but it is so good. He says, before people are converted, now think about this, 
they resist a relationship to God because they do not think that God is desirable. They suppose them to be moralistic and harsh, establishing rules intended only to keep people from fulfilling themselves or having fun. A lot of people that you rub shoulders with this week, they think God is simply there to take away their fun. And they think Christians are a group of folks that don't have any fun because they're listening to God who's trying to take away their fun. They believe God's this cosmic killjoy in the sky that's just simply waiting, waiting, waiting. Are they having fun? Can't do that. A lot of people have that perception of God. They really do. So listen to what Boyce goes on to say. The truth is entirely different. For the God we come to know in salvation is entirely delightful. He is holy to be sure. He is also the sovereign, exalted, awesome God the Bible everywhere pictures him to be. We cannot trifle with him. He cannot be taken lightly. But in addition to understanding those incontrovertible truths... The one who trusts God also finds him to be a source of exquisite delight. For he is the perfection of grace, compassion, mercy, kindness, patience, and love. He is, in other words, like Jesus Christ. And the better we know him, the more, in, the more we inevitably delight in him. The reason, now watch this. This is where it gets, he gets our business. You ready? The reason many apparent Christians do not delight in God, is that they do not know Him very well. Ouch. And the reason they do not know Him well is that they do not spend time with Him. Ouch. If you want to delight in God, you got to know Him. And if you want to know Him, you got to spend time with Him. Now, we know this intuitively when it comes to relationships between people. We understand that if we're going to be closer to someone uh, in this life, we've got, to, we've got to spend time with them, right? It's got to happen. For example, if I want to be closer to my wife, Claire, we've got to spend time together. If I, it, it, listen, if I treated my wife the way a lot of folks treat God, we would have a terrible marital relationship. So, so think about how a lot of people treat the, treat the Lord. They come on Sunday, right? I love you, you're great. And then they ignore him Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. They come back on Sunday, I love you, you're great, right? And they ignore him Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Is that spending time with God? Are you going to grow closer to God like that? Are you going to learn to delight in him like that? No. What if I treated my wife like that? On Sundays... I walk in the room and say, Claire, I love you. You're great. You're great. You're great. Now, I'm not going to speak to you Monday through Saturday. I don't really want to be around you. But next Sunday, I'll come back and tell you how great you are. Now, what kind of marriage will we have? What kind? Tell me. Not good, right? Not good. We, we know, don't we, that if we want to be closer to someone, uh, another person, we've got to spend time with them. And if we want to be closer to God and learn to delight in Him and let Him give us contentment and joy, we must spend time with Him. Now, just real practically, how do you spend time with God? That sounds kind of mystical. How do you spend time with God? It really is this simple. You read your Bible and you pray. It really is that simple. When you read your Bible, God is talking to you. When you pray, you're talking to God. Guess what? That's spending time with God. It's that simple. And so let me encourage you. I don't want to you know, make you feel bad. But I want to encourage you. If you don't have regular 
consistent time with the Lord, would you begin to build space into your life for your most important relationship? And, and daily, daily just, just carve out some time and read the Bible systematically, consistently. And when you read your Bible, God is speaking to you, and then you begin to talk to God about what you read in the Bible. You're talking to God. And guess what? You are spending time with your Creator. You are spending time with the God of the universe. You are spending time with your Redeemer. You are spending time with the the, the shaper of your soul. You are spending time with God. And there's nothing, listen, there's nothing more vital than spending time with God because you get to know Him better and you begin to delight in Him. Amen? And so let me encourage you just to build that space into your life for the Lord. Jesus talked about going into your inner room and closing the door behind you. Matthew 6, you know, uh, in, in modern vernacular, that may mean, you know, leave your cell phone in the other room, right? To get off Facebook for a few minutes, you know, turn the TV off and, and get alone with God and read the Bible. That's Him talking to you. And then you talk to him, that's prayer. You say, Wade, what should I read? Just get a Bible reading plan. Go to Google and type in Bible reading plan. And this is a great time of the year to do it because we're getting ready to start January. We're almost to 2017. Great time to start a new Bible reading plan. And a Bible reading plan will guide you through all the Scripture in a systematic, consistent way. I believe that you ought to be reading things like Habakkuk every year and Haggai and Leviticus and Micah and Revelation, and James, and Luke, and Galatians, and First Thessalonians, and, Ju- and Jude, and uh, Philemon. And, I mean, we ought to read all of God's Word, because He gave it to us for a reason. We ought to read it systematically, consistently. Read through the Word of God. Follow, follow a Bible reading plan. If you need a suggestion, I've got one I love and I use, and, I'm, and I'll tell you what that is if you want to talk to me after we're done. Uh, but get a Bible reading plan and you say, wait, how do you, how do you pray? I mean, I don't even know. Okay, I, I read consistently through the Bible systematically. God is speaking to me. How do I pray? Well, uh, follow the pattern of the, the Lord's Prayer, the model prayer in Matthew chapter 6. Our Father who is in heaven, start by praising Him. Hallowed be your name, right? That's how Jesus told us to start. So maybe just quote that little line and then spend a few moments praising God. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Spend some time asking God to align you with his will, to lead you, to guide you, to direct you. Um, give us today our daily bread. Begin to ask God for needs in your life, to meet needs in your life. Whatever your needs are, begin asking to meet those needs. But pray for other folks. They have needs. Pray for, that's called intercession. Pray for them. You know, lift them up to the Lord. Pray for needs to be met in your life. That's called supplication. You know, the Bible says that we are invited to ask God for things. The Bible says you have not because you ask not. Jesus said, uh, knock and keep knocking, seek and keep seeking, ask and keep asking. We ought to ask God for, to, for things in our life, right? He, he invites us to do that. And, and then after you ask him for some things, the next part of the, the uh, Lord's Prayer says, gives their daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses and we forgive those who trespass against us. Spend some time getting your heart right with the Lord, confessing your sins, making sure you don't have anything against someone in your life and you're getting right with other people and you're just confessing and, and asking God to cleanse your heart and, and, and forgive you and all of that. Uh, lead me not to temptation. 
deliver me from evil. You know, ask God to protect you, to guide you, to protect you from the attacks of the evil one. I mean, just, just pray. Just talk to God about the needs in your life and praise Him and ask Him for help and confess your sin. And that's how you talk to God. So, I just can't encourage you enough to spend daily time alone with God. Some people call it a quiet time, whatever you want to call it. Spend time alone with God. Read the Bible. He talks to you. Pray. You're talking to Him. And as you do that, you will learn to delight in Him. Amen? Fourth imperative, here's the word commit. Commit. Look in verse 5. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him and He will act. Now this is a really interesting word. I had a great time studying Hebrew this week. Uh, This word, the literal meaning of this word is to roll. And it was used for rolling stones away from things. Like if you need to roll a stone, they would use this this Hebrew word to roll away that uh, stone. That's the literal meaning of this word. And it came to carry with the idea of committing uh, your life to him. And and it, it, it carried with the idea of, of rolling your needs in life onto the Lord. One of the best illustrations I've heard of this uh, is a former pastor. He uh, uh, shared in a sermon one time that he had a job for summer uh, roofing. And one of his jobs was to carry shingles up the ladder to the roof. And he said that was, you know, back-breaking work. He'd put a stack of shingles on his shoulder and carry them up to the roof. And he said he never forget how it felt to get to the top of the ladder with this big, heavy burden on his shoulders. And he said he would roll it off of his shoulders onto the roof. And that's what this word means. We have burdens, we have needs, we have concerns, we have anxieties, and, and if we're going to commit our way to the Lord, our life to the Lord, we take those things, we take our future, we take it all, and we, we roll it onto God's shoulders. We give it to Him because He can handle it a lot better than we can handle it, right? That's what He means by commit your way to the Lord. We are to place our lives in God's hands. That's what the word commit means. Look what it says in verse 23. This idea is repeated. The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hands. So we put our life in God's hands, and we know that God will take care of us. He establishes our steps. So if you're, if you're anxious about you know, some, some difficult circumstances, if you're anxious about your future, commit your way to the Lord. Say, God, it's yours. You deal with this. I can't. You deal with it. It's yours. Roll it off onto him, and he can handle it better than you. And then the fourth imperative is be still. What's the opposite of anger? Look up. Trust. Delight. Commit. Be still. Look what it says in verse 7. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Be still. This means we are to wait for the Lord to act. In other words, when we see something that is unjust, when we see nice guys finishing last, and it just bothers us, wait for the Lord He'll handle it. Eventually, 
perfect justice will be meted out. Amen? Listen to me. When the dust settles on human history, every tongue will be able to declare the justice of God. That He did everything right, handled everything perfectly. He is just. And so, we see things happening that we don't like. We've got two options. We can fret and get angry and say, that's not fair. Or we can say, God, I'm going to wait on you. You will take care of this. Be still before the Lord. Wait for the Lord to act. He will handle it better than we can. This is a quote from Warren Wearsby. He writes, the verb means be silent, be still. It describes calm surrender to the Lord. Creative silence is a rare commodity today, even in church worship services. People cannot tolerate silence. A silent radio or TV screen invites listeners and viewers to switch to another station or channel. But unless we learn to wait silently before God, we will never experience His peace. For us to get upset because of the evil schemes of the ungodly is to doubt the goodness and justice of God. So we just have to wait. Trust that God will take care of it all. So, instead of fretting and being angry, look ahead. Consider eternity. Look up. Trust in the Lord. Delight in the Lord. Commit your way to the Lord and wait for the Lord. Be still before the Lord. But here's the third thing. If you want to live a life of joy and contentment and not fretting and anger, mind your own business. The Bible tells you to mind your own business. How about that? does. Look what it says in verse 3. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. So notice there, trust in the Lord and do what? Good. So we're not just passively just waiting around for God to handle everything. We're going to actively do something good. That's what he means there. Befriend, he says, faithfulness. Live a faithful life. Mind your own business. Instead of comparing and contrasting our circumstances with the wicked. By the way, social media helps us do that, doesn't it? Social media is a tool that can be used by the enemy. It can be used for good, there's no question about that. But it can be used by the enemy. And what we find ourselves doing is comparing and contrasting our lives to others. And if we're not careful, we can say, well, that's not fair. They got the beach vacation and I didn't. Or they got the promotion and I didn't. Or, the, you know, their family's doing great and mine's not. And we can find ourselves comparing and contrasting with others. Instead of doing all of that, instead of comparing and contrasting, we should focus on living a righteous life. Mind your own business. Right? It was easier 50 years ago to mind your own business than it is now. But we need to do that. Now, what does it mean... To mind your own business. What does it mean to live a righteous life in the midst of all that we see transpiring all around us? Let me give you one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight quick things and we'll be done. In this psalm, we see a description of a righteous life. Number one, do good. Verse three, trust in the Lord and do good. Look in verse 27. Turn away from evil and do good. Just do the right thing. Do good. Every one of us, regardless of our lot or station in life, every one of us, every day, has the opportunity to do something good, don't we? Every one of us. So do it. Instead of complaining and, 
and fretting and, and that's not fair. Just do something for somebody. Do good. And I promise you that will get your focus off of them onto the thing it ought to be on, which is being a light for the, for the glory of God. What is that noise? Are they still working over there? All right. They should be in church. They should, they should be in here. All right. But we also need it done really bad. So anyway, all right. So do good. Second thing, be faithful. Be faithful. Look what it says in verse 3. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Just be faithful. Do what God tells you to do. All right? Be obedient. Be faithful. Live a faithful life. Be a good steward of all that God's given you. That's what faithfulness means. God has given you uh, blessings and resources and relationships, and we ought to be good stewards of that. Be faithful. Number three, forsake anger. Look in verse 8. Refrain from anger, forsake wrath, fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. If you live angry at circumstances or angry at what's happening in other people's lives, it will lead you down the wrong road. It really will. Over in uh, Ephesians 4 it says, if we don't deal with anger between us and a loved one, then we are, if we let the sun set on our anger... The Bible says we are giving the devil a place. The literal word there is place. In other words, we're giving him a foothold in our life to wreak havoc. That's what it means. Forsake anger. Don't let anger control you. Be meek. Be meek. Look in verse 11. The meek shall inherit the land. Delight themselves in abundant peace. Jesus uses that thought in the Beatitudes when he encourages us to be meek, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Speaks of God's reward and God's blessing. Be meek. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is strength under control. Moses was called the meekest man to ever live on the earth, and he was a strong man. He was, he was, he was meek, but he, he controlled his strength. Instead of using his authority and power to seek vengeance on his enemies, he prayed for them and interceded for them. He was a meek man. Numbers chapter 12 tells a story about his meekness. Next, be generous. Verse 26. Look what it says about the righteous man. Verse 25. I've been young and now I'm old. I've never seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. Verse 26. He is ever lending generously and his children become a blessing. So be generous. With your resources, be generous. When you're generous, it takes your eyes off of yourself and puts them on others. Amen? Be generous. Uh, one of my uh, favorite preachers listen to Johnny Hunt says that you're never more like Jesus than when you're giving. Think about that. You're never more like Jesus than when you're giving. You want to be like Jesus? Give. Be a giver. Next, live to leave a legacy. Verse 26, his children become a blessing. So if we are investing in others that are coming behind us, teaching them, modeling for them what it means to live a godly life, a righteous life, then one day they will be a blessing to others. They will live a righteous life. So instead of thinking about what everybody else is doing, focus on the family God's given you. Amen? Focus on your family. And invest in them. 
It's a great old song by Steve Green that says, May all who come behind us find us faithful. May the, may the fire of our devotion light their way. May the footprints that we leave lead them to believe, and the lives we live inspire them to obey. I love that. So may we leave godly footprints for our loved ones to walk in. Live to leave a legacy. Next, and by the way, everyone's going to leave a legacy. What kind of legacy will it be? A godly legacy is what we're looking for. Next, speak wisdom. Look in verse 30. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom, and his tongue speaks justice. And so righteous people um, demonstrate their relationship with God by what comes out of their mouth. One of the indicators of whether or not a person is godly is their tongue. That's scary, isn't it? Let me say it again. I don't think you got that. One of the indicators as to whether or not someone is godly is what comes out of their mouth, their tongue. I mean, if someone is, you know, purports to live a godly life, but their mouth is filled with vile things and, and, and you know, tearing down others and slandering and deceit, they're not a godly person because Jesus said that what comes out of the mouth comes from the heart, Right? So speak wisdom. Ask God to help you to speak wise words that encourage and edify and build other people up. And then be just. Look in verse 30. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom. His tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. Be just. Treat people right. Do the right thing. Obey God. Live by his commandments. Be just. Treat other people the way they ought to be treated. So here's the deal. If you find yourself focusing on things in this life that just look unfair, ungodly people thriving, godly people struggling, nice guys finishing last, and it just really is bugging you, and you can't get past it, here's what you need to do. You need to look ahead, think about eternity, look at people's lives from an eternal perspective, look up. Trust in the Lord, commit your way to the Lord, be still before the Lord, delight in the Lord. And then last, mind your own business. Live a godly life and let God take care of everything else. Mind your own business. Aren't you encouraged tonight the Bible told you to mind your own business? Aren't you encouraged by that?